You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 39. This is the third episode out of four that focus on anatomy topic. Today, my guest, Ferris Fakuri, unpacks the myth of stretching versus strengthening. Ferris has been a physical therapist for a very long time and a yoga teacher for the last eight years. She does an excellent job of integrating the academic science-based perspective of the human body with the more intuitive experiential perspective. During the episode, you'll hear us mention a five-week series on anatomy and biomechanics that she and I are co-teaching along with next week's podcast guest, Kat Matlock. That series begins in March. If you're interested in attending, or even if you're listening after it's over and are curious about the next one, you can find more information at teachingyoga.net slash anatomy. I hope that whether or not you do end up attending one of my trainings, that today's conversation inspires you to keep learning about the intricate and mysterious human body. Let's jump into the conversation with Ferris. Ferris, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, thank you, Mado. Thank you for the opportunity. This is awesome. I'd love to have you start by sharing a little bit of your story of how you got where you are and why you're passionate about yoga and anatomy and biomechanics. Many years ago, I decided to go into physical therapy school, uh, received a bachelor's in physical therapy, and then practiced for many years, uh, working with adults and children in various areas and various clinical environments, and then decided to further that through a master's degree in human movement science. So I went to Chapel Hill and had the privilege of working with uh, some pretty incredible people doing a lot of motor control and motor learning research. And it was, uh, it was just a, a really big growth time in my, my world and um, expanded my horizons so much that it, it just brought in a whole nother viewpoint. After that, um, I worked in a motion analysis lab for 10 years, analyzing movement of children and young adults with various uh, neurological disorders such as cerebral palsy, spina bifida, uh, post-injury genetic uh, disorders. And throughout that time, it was, it was honing my skills uh, to analyze movement, and it, it's just always intrigued me. Uh, I've been an anatomy uh, kind of geek for a long time. The human body is amazing. It's just, and it never ceases to amaze me. And so from there, during my time in the motion lab, uh, I found, or, or yoga found me, and it was, again, another eye-opener for me. It just uh, rocked my world big time. And having been in the motion analysis lab and then blending the yogic philosophy, it made sense to me to take the next step, which uh, was to move away from the clinic and into an environment where I had more freedom to work with people and to uh, just to, to explore it deeper from the um, yogic standpoint. So that's where I am today. 
I'm curious about what it was about yoga that initially fascinated you or drew you in. Yeah, it it was a very individual experience. It it wasn't academic. It it wasn't highly intellectual. It was um, very much a feeling on the mat that uh, just drew me in, as no other exercise had. Because at that point, you know, I I had developed thousands and thousands of exercise programs for other people. And also with, with my own body, I was a cyclist and a runner and enjoyed all those uh, physical activities. But yoga was totally different because it, it hit an emotional component to me and it gave me strength for some things that were going on in my life at that point. So it, it, while it is a physical practice, it, it's so much more. And that's actually what drew me in rather than a physical practice. I agree. One of the conversations I've been having on this podcast a lot is about the misunderstanding that people have about yoga, which is that it is the the poses or the asanas. And it's a really understandable misunderstanding because the poses are what is are easiest to see. So it's the easiest, the first thing that we wrap our minds around. So my three-year-old, for example, will put one foot up on her other foot into tree pose and say, look, mama, I'm doing yoga. I'm doing yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so when we talk, when we use words, when we talk about yoga, we are using this, this aspect of our selves, our lives, our personalities that is not the same as the emotional experience of yoga. That's why it's so hard to talk about Mm -hmm. because words aren't, part of it. Exactly. In fact, they're inherently separate from the experience of wholeness that, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my word that I use. I don't know if, if you relate to that word or not, but the experience of wholeness that yoga provides, or it doesn't provide it. It just helps us to release some of the barriers to it. (laughs) Exactly. I, I think of it as unveiling yeah. Unveiling different layers of ourselves, of our awakening, of our mind. You know, I, I never really felt or I, I never understood that there was this awareness that could be held of the physical body versus the thoughts in my head. Mm. And yoga helped me understand that those are two aspects of, of my being. And um, that that was, again, it was it was mind blowing for me. And Being an anatomy person um, and what we're going to talk about today, you know, yoga is so much more than anatomy, but when people come to their mat for the first time, what they have most readily available to them and what doesn't frighten them is their body. Mm -hmm. And they can start to feel their body. They can start to experience their body in a different way. And then from there, Um, come to realize, oh, okay, there's so much more here than doing a squat. It's so beautiful for the Western world that that that's the way to introduce us to deeper layers of ourselves. For many of us, the experience of the body that we get by focusing on our body in yoga is one of the steps, one of the eight limbs, Mm -hmm. dharana. And so we begin to narrow our focus and we begin to let go of the mind chatter that Mm -hmm. is so (laughs) compelling and so much of what our 
beautiful mind is good at, but we begin to narrow our focus and we use this experience of moving our bodies as a tool. And that tool it's compelling and useful and helpful, but also distracting because we want the asana to also make us fit and <laughs> want it to heal us, right? We want it to take the place of physical therapy. So we, wow. you know, I think in our quest to, to multitask, sometimes we get confused. And that's why one of my current, you know, focuses or goals is to always bring the focus of when we're talking about yoga back to what is yoga at the essence. And even though all of these other things that yoga can be a part of are really wonderful, if they're also distractions, they're also Maya. The word illusion is a little bit problematic because I don't think it means that they're false. They're real. (laughs) They're real. Yeah. Yeah. But they are not the same as Mm -hmm. the experience that we're, you know, the experience of wholeness that is really the the purpose of yoga. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I love how you phrased it. Um, for me, there's, there's just layers. I, I can't really explain it better than that. There's so many layers. And my understanding of the yoga I practice will change. In a year from now, two years from now, my body is constantly changing. So that's a great reminder to me that change always happens. Nothing's permanent, and the adaptation to that change is really where where it is. And um, you know, becoming a, too attached to a particular way of looking in the mirror, or how long you can hold cer- certain things. You know, warrior two, how long can I hold it? Things like that. Being attached to that becomes less important. The more you understand, um, and everybody has their definition of yoga, which I'm I'm totally down with because it is a personal experience, individual experience, so. Before this episode is released, I'm also releasing an episode, I think I'm gonna call it The Truth About Anatomy. It is gonna revolve around an insight that I had during one of the meetings that you and Kat and I had together when we were planning our continuing education anatomy for yoga teacher series, where I really started to realize that the word anatomy we're using it to describe what we're talking about, but it's it's a very small part of yes. what we're actually teaching. What we're actually teaching is biomechanics, kinesiology, human movement in context. It has its place. It has its uses, but it's limited. Now, today we we get to go a little bit deeper and I I know that one of the one of the myths that you wanted to address is the myth of stretching versus strengthening. You know, often in my background in physical therapy a long time ago, and I, I heard it echoed in uh, one of my teacher trainings, is the idea that um, as we strengthen a muscle, that muscle shortens, gets stronger, hypertrophies, but we have to then stretch the muscle to come back into a better balanced place. And that really ha- doesn't doesn't uh, make sense in the context of, of yoga and really doesn't make sense in the context of human movement. One of the most functional tasks we do as, as humans, as with a normal neurological system and a normal structure, is we walk. It's the most efficient way of moving from A to B. And the reason that it's most efficient 
is because our neurological system and our muscles tend to understand the concept of efficient movement and they use more eccentric contraction than concentric contraction. When we move in a normal environment, everyday environment, we're using much more eccentric contraction than concentric. And can you define those terms? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Concentric is uh, fairly easy to understand. Concentric is when the muscle activates and shortens in order to move in a certain way. So for instance, um, if you're lifting a weight with your hand toward you, um, you're going to be using your bicep muscle. And then the bicep shortens as it lifts the weight. So that's a concentric contraction. It shortens. When you then release that weight and you go to place it down again to its original position, you're using a controlled contraction called an eccentric and the muscle actually lengthens. So an example for yoga teachers of an eccentric contraction we all use is when we're moving into forward fold. Our hamstrings and to a certain degree our hips and low back muscles even use eccentric contraction in order to control the forward bend. Now, eventually, as we get into a full forward bend, those uh, eccentric contractions may relax and some people completely just are there and they, they're using gravity to, to hold, hold themselves down. But in order to get there efficiently um, and with control, you're using an eccentric contraction. So would you say that the eccentric contraction is a way of resisting and slowing the pull of gravity? Exactly. Oftentimes that, that is it. The hamstrings work in a very similar way when we walk. As our one leg swings through to reach through to the first step, momentum actually flexes our hip and the only muscle action that we have to use, this is why gait is so efficient, is a hamstring kicks in at late swing phase to control it so we gently can touch down and our leg doesn't swing wildly forward. So again, eccentric contractions um, are used in, in most of our life. And uh, so to get back to the, to the original idea, we, we don't, that idea that we strengthen a muscle, we move it into a strong pose, and then we have to then come back at another time to stretch it out really doesn't, uh, doesn't make sense in the context of a yoga class and, and really in life in general. An eccentric contraction, a lengthening of the muscle, actually does strengthen it. It strengthens it throughout that range that you're moving into. So there's, there's no opposition between strengthening and stretching. They can occur at the same time. If what you're saying is that the role of stretching, as many people have previously thought about it, is misguided, what is the role of stretching? I like to think of it as reserve. So if you, again, use the example of walking. In walking, we only use 30 degrees of hip flexion. We only use 60 degrees of knee flexion. We only use approximately five to 10 degrees of dorsiflexion at the ankle, the ankle movement. It's an incredibly efficient thing. However, that's not life. Think of us as walking on ice, or we accidentally hit a patch of ice and immediately 
that hamstring is stretched quickly, unexpectedly, and without that reserve strength in that lengthened position, then things can tear, we can fall, injuries can occur. So I like to think of um, stretching as a way to build those reserves when we, when we need them, they're there for us. So I'm hearing you talking about stretching with some eccentric contractions, so strengthening with some engagement. There a role for passive stretching because a lot of the way that yoga has been practiced, at least in the West in the last 20 years that I've been involved with it, there's been a big emphasis on passive stretching where, for example, you would lie on the ground, put a strap around your foot, and then use the strap to pull your foot as close to your body as possible without any muscle engagement so that there's no, you know, and in that position, when you're coming out of the stretch, you're not even really, there's not a lot of load to use your muscles, even, yeah. even in that, you know, release from it, because you're still supporting yourself with the strap. You know, that's a, that's a great, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a, it's a really um, good discussion to have for yoga instructors as well as physical therapists. In the PT world, that I think has become, depending on the diagnosis, the, pers the person that you're working with, which diagnosis they have, I rarely think about passive stretching as part of a treatment regime. And, and the reason is because active stretching is really much more functional, much more useful uh, than passive. And also the literature to get a stretch, a real stretch, where you, you make some difference um, in, in a person's length of the muscle, you have to hold it for an extremely long time. You're, you're, you're not talking about 30 seconds. Well, that reminds me of yin yoga. That is a style of yoga where mm -hmm. you hold a stretch passively for one to five minutes. Yes. Yin is a great example. But in yin, I would, would suggest that it's not just a passive stretch in yin. It's also that you're calming the neurological system. You're slowly coming into it. You're stretching both nerves and fascia as well as muscle. And with the calming of the nervous system, you can relax and actually gain length, uh, much more so than trying to put your body into a passive stretch that you're not ready for. It's also, there, there's some research to support the idea that it's rare that a person has a, a classical contracture or structural problem in the muscle, that actually it's more that our neurological system is almost like a, in a hyper state that re doesn't allow us to fully feel the full length of our muscles that are already available for us. So that's a, that's a whole nother uh, a podcast there, but <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's, I think it's absolutely relevant and I'm glad that it came up. What I'm hearing you say is that if you're going to do passive stretching, yin yoga is probably the way to do it. And the benefits go beyond just a increased range of motion because there's an effect on the nervous system. Absolutely. And, and I think that when you affect the nervous system, a person feels the difference. You know, I, I've used passive stretch uh, as a PT so much in the clinic. And my experience with it is that, yeah, you might be able to 
to gain some degree of range of motion, but does that, is that retained by the person after they leave? Mm. And I don't know that it is. I think that with yin, you feel the relaxation of the neurological system and you're, the more you practice it, the more you're able to replicate that and then go on to use the range of motion that you may have gained during that session. I think the other question that's important when we talk about making choices around what kind of practices to do is on an individual level, what is going to be most beneficial for this individual? For some people, yin might be exactly what they need, what their bodies need, what their nervous systems need. And for others, that might be a little bit of a misguided focus. Exactly. And, and also, you, the individual may have something called hypermobility syndrome. They often go into it too deep, hold it too long, because it initially feels good to them. And then hours later, they can have a lot of inflammation from, from too much of a stretch. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Depends on the individual. Is there really such a thing as an inherently good or bad asana choice? And it, it honors the complexity of the body more if we avoid using a value judgment. In the reality of it, the, the context in the individual person determines what makes an asana either something to use that's helpful or something that's not helpful. And also to remember that as we age, what may have been a very helpful uh, asana at age 25 may not be health, healthy at all for us at 65. So this idea that there are corrective exercises, I guess, is, is one way to look at it in yoga um, that we can use with the assumption that certain movements are inherently good for the body and certain movements are inherently not uh, so healthy for the body. And I think it depends completely on the structure of the body and the goals that the person has. So how do you recommend that yoga teachers make choices around which asanas to their students? You know, in today's yoga, at least in many of the classes, there's an enjoyment. Um, people send, tend to enjoy uh, vinyasa flow. And, and then also, in, at least in Asheville, we're often teaching large, multi-skilled classes. There's sometimes uh, new, new folks to yoga. There's sometimes very experienced people in class. So choosing your, your asana can be, um, I think, a very uh, challenging thing to do. And it's a, for me, it's a constant watching of the class, seeing how people move. And I tend to start my classes with some very basic, gentle movements, and, and I watch carefully how people use their bodies to determine how the rest of that class is going to flow. That, that's a very, I think that's kind of a high level of, of teaching, and it, and it requires some experience. Well, you got to first understand how the human body moves, then you got to watch the human bodies that are in your class. <laughs> Exactly. And yeah. regress or progress based on what you see. It's not a quick fix band-aid solution. No, it, it's not. And I think I, I've been, uh, had the privilege of working with some really, really good yoga teachers and have had an opportunity to, to be trained by some great teachers. One of my teachers had the idea that always push to the limit. And if a person can't get to that limit, they can always come into child's pose. They can always have the option of, of coming down. 
what I have found in the last, um, oh, what is it, eight years now of teaching is that people often don't want to do that. <laughs> if you offer a pose, by goodness, they're going to try to go to that limit. And, and I often, if I see that, that multiple people are, are getting into a situation where it's just not a healthy um, position, I'll often stop, regroup, and come back um, to the maybe the initial component of a pose and verbally give them the option of staying there or either that or I, I just don't go any any further. So you used the phrase of not a healthy position and I would love for you to expand a little bit about how that phrase is different from good versus bad because mm -hmm. there are some similarities. And so what is not a healthy position? How do we know it's not a healthy position? Let's talk a little bit about what that means. When I initially said there's, I don't believe there's an inherently good or bad asana, that's based on the asana choice itself. Healthy versus unhealthy is based on the individual. So what might be a very helpful and healthy asana for you may not be one, that same one may not be that way for me. Here's an example, and, and actually this gets into our next topic about um, something called, you know, the perfect alignment versus injury prevention and, and optimal loading, is I had a client recently that we had worked together on, in, in a private setting, and I was uh, moving her into what I thought was a healthy position in warrior two. Um, that's a, that's a big one that I hear, uh, instructors give the cue to have the knee forward and not coming inward to, to kind of protect the knee. Well, in her case, in doing that, it hurt her hip. Her hip structure was such that, um, having the, the foot forward, the knee forward, was causing a lot of pain and discomfort and long-term pain. It, she would hurt, you know, a maybe an hour even after class. So um, as we continued to work, I modified. And if someone were to see her particular warrior two, they may feel, gosh, what was that yoga teacher thinking? You know, because it, it doesn't look as the traditional perfect alignment. But for her, in her structure, in her hip, this was the most comfortable. It still was strong. She enjoyed it, felt good. That was her uh, body's interpretation of warrior two. What did it look like? We had to modify it such that her foot uh, rotated inward instead of straight forward. That, in turn, protected her knee. It allowed her knee to be in a little better position. And then, of course, the hip, um, we moved her pelvis, the other side of her body had to move forward slightly to give her more comfort in the hip. So it was a modification throughout the whole body, really. We had to bring um, her out of so much right hip abduction. So we brought the pelvis forward on the left. Doesn't that kind of beg the question of whether or not Warrior Two is a helpful pose for her? Exactly. Um, the modification, when, it, when the modifications of, of a particular asana are so extreme that the, the asana ceases to exist, 
then I think that absolutely that's not a great choice. For her, on the left side of her body, it was easy. It, it, it was so, and she enjoyed it. it. It was just one of those things that she enjoyed doing. She felt strong in it. And we did other asana, certainly, but this particular one is just a, a good example of trying to, to work with somebody that if you tried to put them in perfect alignment, it was never going to work and it was going to be painful. I think this starts to point towards the limitations of group classes and, <laughs> you know, the, the desire that people have to be part of a group and do what the group is doing. And yet there's no way to make a, one practice that fits everybody. Exactly. You know, the ancients used to train one student, one teacher. And, and I really can respect that and, and love that idea. And I do encourage people to um, take some time for themselves and, and do some private with an, an instructor that they trust and enjoy, because that can change a person's practice so much. And, in, and often in, when I teach a multi-level uh, group class at, at Anjali, I know the students so well that I see the modifications that they're making and I'm so happy because they've done their homework, they know their bodies, they're aware of their bodies and there's subtle differences throughout the room, but they're all making these choices based on their comfort and, and where they are at that time. A little bit earlier, you mentioned wanting to talk about alignment. Do you still want to expand on that? There's an idea, I think, in yoga teacher training that if we have poor alignment, then uh, that might cause pain and injury. And the definition of poor alignment is, is the, the real challenge, right? Because alignment is based on the person's body, structure of the body, in addition to the asana that you're offering. Same discussion that, that we just had. When we look at the pain literature, it's much more complicated. Pain, we know now, um, is related more to the nervous system's reaction to a perceived threat. And so if, if we use language, and this gets into the verbal cueing section of, of the talk, if we use language that's fear-based, like, uh, for instance, what we were talking about in Warrior Two, if we use language such as, oh, let's better position the knee to protect the knee, it kind of gives the idea that our bodies are fragile and there's always this idea that, oh my gosh, we're gonna injure ourselves during a yoga class. And for most people coming to a yoga class, um, they have a, a pretty normal neurological system, they have a pretty normal bone structure, and they have the ability to adapt. And in real life, um, we're constantly adapting to different loads, different movement patterns that um, because we live in a gravity environment, we're constantly shifting our bodies in a way that our joints take different loads and different angles. Yoga really is considered a low load activity. Uh, if we think about a, a person in the gym lifting 300 pounds in a squat, because of that amount of weight that they're lifting, alignment could be incredibly important because that's, that's not a, a typical thing we do. In yoga, yoga is often the movements that we have can have small variations. And actually those small variations might be a great thing because inevitably it helps our body adapt to a different load. 
So going back to the verbal cues, perhaps instead of uh, kind of the fear-based cue in uh, Warrior Two, maybe a cue could be, let's position the knee forward in order to better activate or in order to better engage the lateral hip muscles or your, your, your hip muscle, you know, something along the positive aspects of it to help the person understand the strength of their body and how they can adapt. Can you define the word load? Because I think it's a really important, (laughs) it's like the key term for biomechanics, but not all yoga teachers have been taught biomechanics. So what does load mean? Um, Think of load as something that you carry. For instance, walking, I I like to use walking as an example. It's something that most folks can kind of understand and and at least uh, make sense to them. As you shift your weight over to the foot that's on the floor, you, you lift the other swing limb to walk. But as you shift your weight onto that standing limb, you're loading that limb. You're loading your foot, your knee, your hip, your lower extremity. So that's, that's what we talk about as a load. It gets more complicated as that load, as you move, the load shifts. So as, for instance, we'll come back to forward fold. If I'm standing upright and then I start to go into forward fold, the load shifts forward. My center of gravity moves forward and creates a flexion moment, a, a, a position of the hips that make them want to go into flexion because the load has shifted forward. And so that, that creates a situation where we have to use our hamstrings and our hips to control that or we'll just fall forward. So that's what we're talking about from a biomechanic standpoint. The load is something, I like to think of it as something that we carry. And then that load, as it shifts and moves, that becomes more um, kinesiology related. So as we're thinking about load in yoga and alignment in yoga, alignment, would you say, is about finding the most efficient way to carry that load? That's what people are thinking. You know, that's, I think, the theory behind the alignment is that we're trying to find a more efficient, stable way to carry whatever load that shape is, which might be really helpful for people who are very deconditioned or people who are beginners. And I think it's a good blueprint to start with to understand how to move the body efficiently. And then as you learn your own body and you start to adapt to that load, then you might purposefully choose different positions that are not quote unquote optimal alignment to start to condition those positions also. Yes. When we look at optimization of loading, you, you do have to take into account the structural alignment of the person's body. And also, it becomes even more complicated when you're post-op, you know, surgical intervention that changes, sometimes radically changes the um, bony alignment of a person. The, one of the big things that I work with in my private clients is a loss of lumbar extension, lower back extension. For various reasons, they lose that ability to, to move comfortably into extension. And there can be some reasons that are structural and that you just simply cannot uh, modify. You have to, to teach them how to, to change the alignment of their asana in order to fit this. But when you lose the extension of the low back, 
you lose so much efficiency in the way that we can move. Our stride length is uh, significantly altered in gait when we don't have the ability to extend the low back. It's more so than, than one would think. So um, alignment and loading is uh, it's a big topic. I think it's, it's an important topic. Um, and verbal cueing and, and fear-based verbal cueing, I think, just exacerbates uh, the person's understanding of their body um, and how adaptable the body is. Maybe this is a good moment to invite people to come to our anatomy and biomechanics and kinesiology, et cetera, <laughs> series that you and I and Kat Matlock, we're all co-teaching starting in March. I will provide more information in the show notes and in the outro of how to find that, but we would love to continue this conversation with people in person and in dialogue. We'd love to get your questions. We'll have lots of Q&A time. Cool. Yes, I'm very excited about this. I think it's, it's going to be great. Um, I, I know that I'll learn a lot and super excited to share uh, the the small amount of information that I have. So yeah, be great. And Ferris, for people who would like to find out more about you, maybe work with you one-on-one or come to your classes, how can they find you? The best place to reach out to me is at Anjali Hot Yoga, the studio. They can um, just go online and look at our website, anjalihotyoga.com. Contact me there. That's, that's great. Uh, they can leave a message on the phone. I do uh, respond to that. Yeah, I'd love to meet him. Thank you, Ferris. Thank you so much. So much great information there. I absolutely love working with Ferris. She is one of those rare people who combine a big brain with an even bigger heart. Before I sign off for today, let me plug the series we mentioned one more time. We thought long and hard about the format for this offering. We chose the series format, even though probably we could get more people to come to a weekend format, because learning about anatomy, kinesiology, and biomechanics can be really heady, and we don't want our students to get overwhelmed and start to shut down. We want them to stay engaged and actually learning the whole time. We want you to leave each day, each session, feeling inspired to start applying what you've learned in your own classes. Know that there are a lot of listeners who geographically just can't make it to our series, so I thought I would share with you some things to look for in a training. Unless you're incredibly motivated or really don't have any other options, I would choose an in-person training over virtual and a series over a more intensive format. The other thing is... Look for a training where the target audience is movement educators. Take the time to speak with the instructors and make sure that they're going to include exercise science, biomechanics, and kinesiology in addition to anatomy. If you haven't yet listened to last week's podcast called The Truth About Anatomy, that's a great foundation to help you understand the differences between those different areas of study and why I believe that yoga teachers need all of them together, not just anatomy. If you enjoyed today's episode, definitely come back next week for The Anatomy of Stretching with Kat Matlock. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.